the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 386. Now today we've been at an event put on by Chorus in Auckland, uh, talking a little bit about uh, really where things are heading in terms of internet connectivity, uh, a big focus on uh, 5G and fibre to the home and uh, yeah, where, where some of the crossovers uh, what are some of the challenges? And so uh, we're going to uh, we're going to dive into that discussion now. Um, now, two two guests with me today. Um, first up, hi, I'm Huey Hazi, uh, Vice President for Telecom and IoT for IDC Asia Pacific. Thanks for joining the show. And I'm Benoit Felton, uh, founder and uh, chief research officer at Diffraction Analysis, a telecoms analysis firm based in Hong Kong and Paris. Great. Well, um, real privilege to have both of you uh, on the show, and uh, um, I guess we have uh, Chorus to uh, to thank for uh, facilit- facilitating that today. Um, look, there's I think lots we could talk about on these topics. But a few notes that I, I took, uh, you know, during your your talks this afternoon, and um, you know, I'm keen to uh, keen to jump in on on a f- on a few of those things. Five um, G, I guess, is an area that we've been hearing uh, you know, bits and pieces about for a long time, but it seems there's more and more noise, which is to be expected as we get uh, closer to five G becoming uh, something of a of a reality. You maybe we could uh, we could start with with you. Where do you think we're at uh, on this journey? Um, you know, you've 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 both talked about the different things that you've seen around the world in terms of uh, progress to five G here in New Zealand. Well, we've had uh, you know we've had a, a couple of little demos, uh, but uh, you know we're we're not expecting to see uh, you know five G you know any time in the in the in the short you know very short term anyway. I mean, you know, net net. We expect 5G services to sort of come to market around the 2020, 2025 timeframe. So we're still in early adoption days. We only just got the standard ratified for the new radio interfaces um, in December of last year. We'll probably ratify some further standard stuff in June this year. So there's a lot of noise around um, investment and build out of both the core and the radio, the air interface. Um, That needs to be done by the operators and the vendors are going to drive that very strongly. There are some early adopters who are pushing to begin to offer mobile broadband type services into their market. But as we said inside, um, the three aspects I think that are needed in, in succeeding in the space is delivering speed, delivering Um, getting the right spectrum uh, band and getting the services to market. We're still a long way away from defining what those services are and how we make money on them. So what have you you observed and, you know, what do you see are um, are those that are leading the way internationally at the moment? So first of all, one thing that, Uh, I think is important to stress is that 5G will absolutely deliver better speeds, lower latency. Um, But we know from past experience that these are actually very hard to generate extra revenue off of. 
So the first key question, which explains why in matters of concrete implementations, we don't have much to look at right now, is that no one really knows on the basis of that how they justify this this significant, if not massive, investment. Having said that, um, there are a number of um, players and or countries where where some things are moving, at least. Um, in the US, there are two uh, incumbent uh, operators who are um, at least actively talking and piloting in some instances using 5G spectrum or, or, or that kind of spectrum bands to do fixed wireless access. So not as a mobile play so much, but as a substitution to uh, having to deploy fiber or to fiber already being deployed. Right, so a way of delivering you know, fast broadband into people's homes. But exactly. Doing it, doing it wirelessly and, and at a level that uh, you know, should compete with fixed type of offerings. Yes. And, and then we have Japan and Korea and China to some extent, although I'm always a bit cautious around China because they announce a lot of things, but we know that not many decisions are taken on the basis of a proper business model having been run, taken on the basis of the government saying we should do this. So we need to be careful that even though China is moving ahead, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's an economic kind of impetus to do that. Japan and Korea, uh, I think, are forging ahead. Um, and uh, Korea in particular is really, uh, I, I guess, looking at a shorter time frame. Uh, in Japan, it seems to be the individual mobile operators who are, who are moving fast. Uh, in Korea, there seems to be more of a kind of government consensus that things need to happen. Okay. Mm. Um, Hugh, now maybe you could just describe what is what is 5G? How would you describe 5G? Because you know we've got used to these you know different iterations of of mobile networks, and you know 3G was once exciting. Then you know 4G was uh, was exciting. Uh, we've got some sort of you know 4.5G uh, you know starting to starting to happen. Uh, then there's 5G. Um, what, what's it all about, you know, when, if you sort of simplify it down? Um, so 3 and 4G, we were looking at broadcast, right, just like radio going out everywhere. Um, 5G is founded upon this whole idea of beam forming. So it forms a, a single beam between or a tighter beam between the receiver and the transmitter, right? So it's, it's a technology uh, transition that's aimed at giving us greater speed and lower latency. Um, so it requires a different set of technologies, but I need to emphasize that it is an evolution of the standard of delivering wireless connectivity. And we're moving up the value chain in terms of getting faster and lower latency. Um, 4G, you're looking at about 20 to 30 milliseconds of latency. 5G, we can get to one millisecond of latency, depending on how we deploy it. So it's, it's an evolution. It's more and faster. Now, you know, if we look today in New Zealand, we've got uh, 2G, 3G, 4G, 4.5G, you know, varying variants of these things that are, uh, that are actually in use. 
what's your what's, what's you know what's your add what's your more. picture on so, on we, you know what this is going to look like in the future? We're still going to have a, a mix for a long time. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely, picking absolutely. Um, we've got more choice, right? Um, and and we made the point inside about um, you've got low power WAN for your thing connections and low volume stuff. Um, you've got all the consumer bands two through five. You've got fixed access, um, which is fantastic for many, many use cases and will stay around for a long time. And you've got Wi-Fi. Um, you've also got satellite, which seems to be enjoying a resurgence. So we've now got, it's an exciting time to be in networks because we don't really have to choose one. We've got a, a wide array of, of, of technologies that can be used effectively to solve a problem. And that solution is going to be fundamentally based on the business case, as Benoit said. Mm. Yeah, if we sort of <coughs> step step back, um, look, the topic of disruption is something that people like to sort of throw around, talk about this technology, that product being disruptive. Do, do we have one disruptive technology here, or is it more the sort of combination um, of all of these technologies is what's actually you know, helping to facilitate a range of disruption? I don't think that there is much, if any, disruption in the technologies themselves. What there is is potentially disruptive business models around those technologies. So, uh, you know, typically um, what Free did in France um, by basically taking an approach that if you made a razor-thin margin on a product and came in at a third of what the market price was at the time and added more product than anyone else was doing, you were going to gain sufficient market share to make a living. That's a disruptive approach. But they were using technology that had been around for a number of years. It's just that incumbent operators quite often are not the first ones to adopt any new technology coming in because they don't see the point in investing it's changed a bit now because they're aware that there is a threat of disruption, right? Um, now, it could be argued that what, um, you know, what, what Verizon and AT&T are trying to do with fixed wireless could be a disruptive play, except that they're cherry-picking the markets where they're going to do it to markets where there's no alternative. So, effectively, they're just bringing, bringing better broadband, but they're not really shifting the market in any significant way. So, I think... You know, will there be disruptive applications that will emerge from 5G or even 4G and, and IoT? Yes, absolutely. I think there already are. Um, but is the technology itself disruptive? I don't think so. In fact, as, as Hugh pointed out, it's a continuum of evolutions um, that are not, I think, you know, consumers, because at some point they see 3G on their mobile and at other points they see 4G, they see it as a step change. But the reality is that it's all incremental change. Yeah. And, and the intriguing thing is, you know, at Mobile World Congress this year, there was an almost inex inescapable marriage between 5G and IoT. And the use cases that were being demonstrated for 5G were you know, connected car, connected buses, not autonomous car, um, you know, fleet management, convoying, um, remote health, remote asset management. They were very enterprise and they were benefiting from having reliable, 
loss, relatively lossless um, radio networks, right? Because Wi-Fi has a problem in that space. So that was what we saw was the dominant thinking. So I agree. Disruption from the technology itself, no. Disruption in the consumer space, definitely not. Disruption in enterprise use cases um, or smart city type use cases, there's much more opportunity there. And so, yeah, so we look at we look at these technologies. There's something that certainly facilitates disruption, but it's fair to say the technologies them, themselves then, um, yeah, uh, and and I mean, look, you know, let, let's because driverless car is the one thing that keeps keeps coming back again and again. A bit too much, potentially, in my opinion. But you know, uh, what's interesting to me around that is that um, it's actually. It's a disruption, but in the sense that the entire ecosystem needs to shift for any benefit to be to be taken out of it. One driverless car serves no purpose. A hundred percent of driverless cars change the game entirely. <coughs> How we get to zero from zero to a hundred, and the resistance that needs to be uh, overcome for that to happen is absolutely massive. Because what we're talking about is people no longer owning cars. It's um, uh, you know, cities actually barring any vehicle that is not automated. Uh, it, all of these things might happen, but the amount of societal change that you need for that disruption to be put in place is massive. If it does happen, then you are disrupting a whole lot of industries. You're disrupting urban transport, um, you know, be it buses, metros, taxis, etc. You're disrupting commercial transport. You're disrupting car manufacturing, etc. So yes, there is a potential for disruption is enormous, but it's not something that can be implemented overnight and is going to make an immediate difference. It's, it's an ecosystem change that's going to take, my bet would be two to three generations at least. What what what's your thoughts uh, there, Hugh? And and um, yeah, how important do you think that five uh, G mobile networks, uh, you know, will be with with these uh, types of vehicles? Look, um, low latency, high capacity networks are going to be um, essential to achieve a number of connected vehicle solutions. Um, like Benoit, I'm. I'm, I'm not a big proponent of the autonomous vehicle. Um, I, I think that connected vehicles and drive, putting more information in the hand of the driver um, to make decisions is a really good thing. Um, having more visibility and, and a lot of the ADACs, so the, the adaptive controls for, uh, for vehicles, um, are going to be very beneficial. Um, that said, we can actually do a lot of the things that we're needing to do with connected vehicles. The barrier is not the availability of 5G. The, the barrier is edge computing, it is um, social standards, it is monetization models, it is all those sorts of good things. So all of these things are ecosystem plays, 5G or just simple low latency, high throughput networks play a big part. But there's also a vast ecosystem behind them of cloud and applications and analytics and machine learning and all sorts of other good things. Security, privacy, etc. Mm. And also we shouldn't forget that there's a whole lot of stuff <coughs> that we can do and we are not doing that doesn't require those high speeds or low latency. So IoT is just a nascent 
a market where everything is yet to be done and where a lot of the concepts are completely wacky as we perceive them now. In other words, no one really sees what the value delivered is. I mean, you know, connected fridges are well and good, but I don't know of anyone who says, oh my God, I would really like to be able to order my milk automatically and not go shopping. It's We're not actually addressing a need. We're just trying to create a need that I think, well, I think will not be created in in my lifetime anyway. But you see my point. It's It's... What can we do with the technologies that we currently have that can deliver value is probably where the building block of founding the monetization for better networks is going to be. In other words, we will get 5G deployed as we see the need to enhance the performance of current generation network applications that could be enhanced but are already operational, monetized, and, and needed. And the thing is, when when you look at the 4G use cases, right, the emergence of the OTT players, the WhatsApps, the WeChats, the the multitude of other app-based solutions, um, they took an opportunity. They said, okay, now I can do stuff onto a mobile device. Yes. Um, I will take advantage of this network and I will go ahead and I will create these use cases. Where previously, you know, if you said to me, oh, how about, you know, you don't use... You don't use a phone for voice, you use it for a whole bunch of other things. Um, nobody anticipated those use cases, right? right? So we will see those emerging. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that uh, you know, we see so many uh, tech startups and startups sort of always trying to come up with uh, uh, new things and make them work commercially, pull all the bits and pieces of technology together. And I'm sure as we see uh, 5G mobile networks uh, come through, that we're going to see a whole raft of new startups that are uh, working out how to leverage these uh, these networks and, and try to do the new things, which, look, they're going to be... Uh, um, easier uh, to do rather than trying to come up with them now when you can't do anything uh, with the ideas, right? Well, the concern is that, you know, somebody's going to invest in building out these networks and, as in the case of 4G and uh, other solutions, the OTTs are the ones who have reaped the benefit. Others will monetize it. Yep. And that's that's where the big danger arises at the moment is that there has to be a revenue stream for the owners and operators of these networks. Otherwise, they can't continue to invest in building them and maintaining them. Mm. So, look, we we all like you know bigger, better, faster, all of those all of those sorts of things. But of course, we need some sort of uh, benefit before we're willing to pay for it. And you know, in a lot of cases, we're not willing to pay more for the next generation of of network. Um, you know, when we'll pay more is when we're going to get something extra out of it, right? Even even then, we've seen that either, you know, if we look at the mobile data plans, either the prices remain the same and the amount of data um, has increased dramatically or the price has decreased Um you know, we're watching the ARPUs change over time. This is the average revenue, average revenue per, per user. user. Yep. Um, and they continue to decline. Um, you know, a buddy of mine in uh, in India, he pays $25 a month. He used to pay $25 a month for 4 gig of data. He now pays $25 a month for 50 gig of data. Right. 
So operators are trying to maintain those at that average revenue by throwing more at the consumer. There's only so much you can use. Right. And, you know, I guess this is, uh, you know, this all, all comes into a uh, chorus approach here in New Zealand, which is to say to government, hey, rather than having, um, you know, every carrier have their own 5G network, uh, you know, let's, uh, uh, you know, let us provide it for, uh, for the country and then it can be, you know, sliced and diced up accordingly, um, which is an interesting approach. Um, either of you got any any um, you know thoughts on or any experiences on on what's happening in other parts of the uh, other parts of the world, and whether we really know just yet what the numbers are to build five G uh, networks? Because you know, I, I guess uh, you know the the commentary indicates look. There's going to be an increased cost to build a 5G network over a, over a 4G. Uh, once you once you start sort of really building it out to get very close to people. Now, if you just replace a 4G or a 4.5G cell site with a 5G cell site, um, then then that's not you know not really a big deal. But if you've got uh, lots of uh, cell sites that are that are getting very very close to uh, people's homes and so on and that's you know what we've what we heard around 5g um, then that's potentially a pretty expensive play mm. any any views from what what you've seen um, elsewhere I think we've heard about uh, South Korea where the government is sort of pushing 5g yeah and that's I mean again that that's an announcement that's two weeks old so it's it's yeah. very early days mm. um, my understanding uh, is that basically KT has most of the fiber assets it would need to deploy a deep 5G network, but the other two competitors don't. And the government recognizing this basically forced them all around the table and said, there's going to have to be infrastructure sharing here. It's easy in the sense that there's already one infrastructure. Um, and also because, you know, Korea, Japan, these countries have... Basically, government has a lot of authority without officially imposing stuff to make things ha- make things happen anyway. Um, I think if we make the parallel to uh, New Zealand here, now that infrastructure is probably partially in place with Corus's FTTH network, but certainly not enough to do uh, you know the deep coverage that would be required. Um, so this is to put in those cell sites and yes, so, so know, really and close to the end users. So right. so the real question to me is what happens if there is no shared infrastructure? And probably the most likely scenario is at some point the leading operator deploys Auckland, maybe Wellington with five G. And that means two things. The first thing is they get an advantage in those markets that the other two can't catch up with. But also, all of the ecosystem shifts that would be needed to get those innovative solutions out will never happen. Because you don't do driverless cars in one city. You want to drive from one city to the other. And I, again, you know, we're probably overusing that example. But my point is that, say, one thing I've been thinking about a lot is uh, New Zealand has, I think it's around 25% of, of exports is agriculture. Um, Smart agriculture is probably going to happen here before it happens elsewhere. But it doesn't happen if you don't have a network in place. Now, it might be that for many of these applications, you don't need 5G. 
but it might also be that you don't get 4G where you need those even today. So, um, you know, the risk is that 5G, if it happens organically, is likely to be even less well spread out geographically than 4G is. And 4G already isn't even that well spread out geographically. So I think, um, I mean, I, I, and I'm not saying this to, to uh, you know, kind of throw roses at anyone, but I think that the New Zealand government was one of the smartest when it came to FTTH policy. Um, right, with the ultra-fast broadband. With ultra-fast broadband, with the structural separation, with the way that they uh, invested into the network rather than subsidized the network. All of these things are really smart. And other countries in the world, way too late in my mind, but are now starting to look at this and say, well, wait a minute, you know, they got an outcome out of this, which, you know, bang for buck is so much better than anything we've seen elsewhere. What could we learn from that? So I think... To me, it's important that the, the, the policymakers realize that just because they did that doesn't mean the game is set now. They need to keep the, the technology changes are coming in and they change the landscape constantly. So they need to apply that philosophy to what is coming. And there's no rush. I mean, it, it doesn't need to happen tomorrow. Uh, when I see that, and I'm sure Hugh has some things to say about that, but when I see that the UK has already auctioned 3G Spectrum. Um, 5G Spectrum. Sorry, 5G. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can edit. Um, they, they're already auctioned 5G Spectrum um, at least two, if not more, years before the first ever th signal will, will come out. But also in a market where there is actually very little aggregation fiber available because BT has never deployed fiber for residential. That means that the underlying infrastructure is not there how the hell are they going to do that especially with the amount they paid for the spectrum and, and then look I, 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 I agree I think we're going to see um, even 10 years from now I think that if you're expecting a wholesale exchange of 4 to 5 um, then I, I think you'll be disappointed um, I think there will be use cases that are implemented in particular areas um, there is some of the 5G enablement that is a software upgrade on existing 4.5G uh, virtualized cores. Yes. Um, so we don't necessarily need to go for a wholesale exchange, um, especially the approach that's being taken by going 3.4 gigahertz, which is what Australia, um, I think New Zealand will do the same thing. The UK has certainly done. When you go into the millimeter wave stuff, which is what the US has gone with, then you do need greater density and greater and new base stations, which is going to cost money. Um, so, but it's very much led, you know, as, as, as Benoit brought up inside the session today, um, Eric Zhu, the CEO of, um, of Huawei, said, we don't expect to see any experiential change for consumers from 5G handsets. Um, they'll come, but there'll be no appreciable change. So we're going to have to drive those use cases to justify bringing in this technology. Um, just because I can buy a Ferrari doesn't mean I have to buy a Ferrari, right? Um, because or can afford to. Or, or, or can afford to, <laughs> right? Um, you, you know, it, it's, it's about using the right thing for the right job. And 
you know, enterprises, consumers and operators are going to make those monetary decisions and they'll choose what they need. Um, and when there's a compelling case for a 5G solution, um, they'll do it. Right. So, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, telcos are going to have their, their own view. And of course, here in New Zealand, where we've got, uh, you know, three, uh, three players, um, you know, I can, I can see that they wouldn't be so keen for there to be a 5G network that they don't, uh, um, you know, they don't have complete control of. That creates opportunities for, uh, you know, other players to come in and, uh, um, you know, act access this new mobile uh, mobile network um any thoughts on you know how that how that could look if you know for instance uh you know chorus got a rubber stamp from the government they said yep you go for it and uh and and build it how that uh, how that could could play out from uh, from that perspective Anything that you've uh, you've seen? Um. Again, I, I think, in, as, as Benoit said, in Auckland and Wellington, um, you upgrade the base stations over 3.6 gigahertz or thereabouts. Um, you are able to then deliver faster and greater capacity. Um, there are some OPEX um, improvements to be had from virtualizing the core and you know so that reduces your cost that's great um and some efficiencies at that spectrum level um from being able to handle good traffic across the uh, the base stations it relatively inexpensive plus you add in narrowband iot so you can do the connected agriculture smart agriculture stuff um as well um probably outside of the cities so i think that's where we'll see things rest for the next appreciable time um, as, we, as we start to make sense of all this or some of the OTT players come along and go okay um, I will buy that capacity off you but I don't think it's going to be consumers paying extra money uh, to get faster cat videos fair enough so I mean looking at open access models and, and I mean to be clear this, this hasn't really been done on mobile there is a kind of test case in Mexico right now, which is the national um, mobile uh, program. Um, but that's actually reselling capacity. So it's not really a shared infra in the classic sense. Uh, and and it would go all the way to spectrum ownership. So so that entity actually owns the spectrum and, and exploits it. I don't think that's an acceptable model here. Um, so, I mean, you could go anywhere from you know, the underlying fiber and towers are shared to, uh, you know, Chorus actually operates a network and everybody's an MVNO on top of that. Again, I think that's probably unsellable, that last solution. But, you know, everything is, is up there. The, 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 that last scenario would actually be fairly close conceptually to the model on the fixed side today. Um, but I do think that there's somewhere in between that would make you know the most sense basically the idea is to maximize asset utilization and lower the cost of operation for the mobile operators as much as possible so you are transforming capex into opex in a certain way but presumably or hopefully you're bringing that opex down so low that the capex case no longer makes any sense the problem is, and I think this is very key to understand, I said earlier there's no rush, but at the same time, 
as soon as one player starts deploying their own infrastructure somewhere, there's a form of cherry picking that starts to take place. Yeah. So you need, if, if, if the conclusion from the, the, the you know, policymakers is we do need shared infrastructure, then that needs to be put in place before deployment effectively starts. That's the challenge. You, you need to be thinking about this from a regulatory standpoint now. And I think it's less of an issue in that three gigahertz space because that's not too gnarly. And it's macro cell stuff. Yeah. But when you get up into the, the millimeter wave, um, you really have to think carefully because the investments go up and all that sort of good stuff. Do you want one carrier to become a spectrum specialist? So carrier A specializes in 26 and carrier B specializes in, in six or something like that. Um, or do you want to have that millimeter wave being managed more closely um, as a shared radio infrastructure and the sort of consumer band 2.3, everything from, you know, sort of 700 all the way up to three and a half um, being managed independently by the operators and they maintain their own asset banks. So there's different models you can choose. But again, I agree, you have to start thinking about this from a regulatory standpoint and say, what are you going to release and to whom? One thing also I would point out is, um, you know, there's one player in the market today that is roaming on another one's network in order to get national coverage. So that suggests that already, even in the world of 4G, there's an issue with profitability in deploying a national, a third national network. So, you know, in a sense, you could say some form of infrastructure sharing is already taking place. Um, but that's not necessarily the most sensible model for the national outcomes. I, I always uh, frame this in terms of, I think, what the separation did in New Zealand was a great nation-building exercise. That what the, the citizens and the government got out of this is a nationwide network that would not have happened organically in any other scenario. And so that's really what they've got to be thinking about. And so there's two levels. One level is, you know, the economics, but one level is what do we need in terms of deep cell coverage and to do what? So there needs to be a bit of forward thinking around that as well. <laughs> so, look, there's you know, obviously a lot um, that is going to come down to how much these things cost, how much can be, uh, you know, ultimately be returned from the investment. What is the, the upfront capital expenditure uh, to build these networks? What are the long-term, uh, you know, ongoing operational expenses going to look like? Um, and, you know, we probably don't have the... Uh, the time of all of the data to be able to do a, a full detailed analysis on uh, on that right now, and certainly, um, yeah, there's a, there's a pretty important role for uh, government regulators to be uh, to be you know taking in terms of investigating these things, and you know hopefully coming up with uh, you know, good 
good outcomes and and you know to a degree um, that's how good they are at at, at, at analyzing the information that's uh, being fed in their uh, direction from the telcos from chorus from um, the technology providers uh, ar- around the world and no doubt we'll uh, we'll see some outcomes of of that um, you know over the next little while um, now the ultrafast broadband uh, initiative that we have here in New Zealand that's been you know talked about in a in a positive light but something that I guess often comes up in discussions is well why do we why are we going to need fiber um, to the home if we've got this incredibly fast 5g network uh, that will ultimately be uh, Roll, rolled out. Um, just keen to have some, uh, you know, some commentary on on that one. And and look, this is yeah. something we've discussed on the podcast a number of times before. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm curious to hear your perspectives because we're now you know closer to five G than we ever have been before. If if you've already got fibre, if you've already got connectivity that's not copper, that that's fast and scalable and all that sort of good stuff. There has to be a significant difference in performance um, to justify making the swap, swap number one. Um, or, pr- or price. Uh, well, and, 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 you know, what's your, what's your price for 100 meg nowadays? It, it's probably not, you know, in Singapore, it's $25 a month for fibre to the home at 100 meg. It's $49 a month for gigabit. Um, it's not, not quite so cheap here. It's not quite yet, so cheap it, here, right? Yeah. Now, you know, over the pond in Australia, it's expensive to get 30 meg. So number one, you've got a lot of fiber already in the ground. Number two, the difference in price has to be significant. And number three, experientially, it has to be far superior. So if it ticks all those three boxes, then, you know, knock yourself out. Um, But also you have to have physical backhaul to a cell tower you have to have base stations on that cell tower or whatever you're going to put. Um, and you have to have the right density that gives you the coverage and allows you to deliver that service. <clears throat> if all those things become true, then, as I say, knock yourself out. We've seen experiments in the past with things like WiMAX, um, and it hasn't worked so well. So we are very early in the deployment of this stuff. and. Seeing what the experience is in the US, um, you know, as we go into the earlier part of next year, um, seeing what the experience with, you know, any deployment plans in Australia uh, will give us a better clue. But, um, you know, it looks I, like our investments so far in, in fibre here I in New Zealand are pretty, pretty sound. good. I think you, yeah. you know, you've built it out, you've invested well, there's good payback, um, you've got a great network. You know, use it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and one thing you've got to keep in mind is, you know, when we're talking about Verizon and AT&T, you know, neither Hugh nor I are sure that in a city as dense as Dallas, they actually have a business case to do this. The dense parts of New Zealand have been covered with fiber already. The fiber is here. It's in place. So it makes it very hard right. to come up with a business case too. So uh, do, you, do you want to do a business case for, for, you know, small towns in rural New Zealand with, with fixed wireless? Forget it. It's, it's, it's not going to work. It's interesting to me that I, I talk to vendors who sell both fixed, fixed wireless and mobile. And when they show you the business cases, fixed wireless comes out more expensive than FTTH in most of the geographical scenarios. Now, is there some 
space for that to go down with experience, with volume, etc. For sure. Um, and FTTH is already down because it's been deployed for you know 15, 20 years now, depending on the markets. People know how to do it optimally, etc. Now, you were talking about disruption earlier. Is there a case for a Telstra or a TPG to go and compete with the NBN with fixed wireless access in Australia? Hell yeah, I think there is. Yeah. Right? Is there a case here? I don't think so. Because well, there's a bit by the time in our network compared yeah, to but what by, the, by yeah. the time you're going to be ready to deploy, hmm. you're going to have 60 to 70 percent of people on fiber. And so your business case is actually on 30 percent of people who are reluctant to move to fiber, which means that they're not very they don't care very much about their broadband experience in the first place. They're not willing to pay huge amounts of money. And you're going to come in with a new technology expensive that's going to require a huge amount of fiber deployment. In, in, you know, in itself. So I'm sure that Spark and Vodafone, who are currently doing fixed mobile substitution, would love to find a way to continue that with fixed wireless access. The only question mark that I have in my mind is actually tied to, very specifically, the New Zealand model. Because there are certain obligations for Chorus to resell dark fiber to operators as part of their mandate, which means that maybe in some instances, the operators might not have to build that fiber. And, and that might actually make their business model work, whereas if they had to deploy the fiber, it wouldn't work. So that's maybe a question mark that I have. I think it's going to be narrow applicability, but it might be large enough that it's worth giving it a shot. Mm. Um, and it's really all down to regulated prices, et cetera. So it puts the regulated in a very uncomfortable position where basically their decision is going to be make or break on these kinds of things. The regulators try to avoid being in those positions. So all of these questions are up in the air, and I actually fully agree with the point you raised earlier, which is that the policymakers are going to have to do the math. They're going to have to figure out you know, if this needs to be uh, shared, how, what, what's the optimal model for New Zealand? And I'm sure, I mean, they did a bang up job with FTTH. There's no reason why they can't apply the same neurons to making something work with 5G. Hmm. Now, um, something that, that's come up in the past, so I'm just wondering if, if uh, either of you have, have uh, seen anything around this, is this idea that as we move into a 5G world, um, Data caps will all be gone. Is this, uh, you know, is it, is this the 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 case at least for? Uh, well, look, you know, there, there are uh, countries, for, for there, fixed are, there are countries where data caps have gone. Okay, Finland doesn't have data caps on on mobile or fixed. There's actually a case that now it could be down to execution, but certainly um, uh, Elisa in Finland says. By taking off the data caps, we've increased our outputs. Right. So, so you know, th there's actually a case that data caps hurt your business. Um, there's a certain amount of artificiality to data caps. Uh, I remember the first time I came here to speak, uh, I actually came out very strongly against fixed or against wireline data caps by saying, you know, even if all of the hypotheses on how much transit costs are true, the amounts that we're talking about at the end of the month will maybe shave 0.5% off your margin. Mm -hmm. That's not worth skewering the customer over. 
Um, and it's very weird to sell super high speeds on the one hand and then say, but please don't use them on the other. Yes. Um, so there's a certain amount of legacy with the data caps that are still here in, in fix. Now in mobile, I think there's a different phenomenon at play. And again, I don't think it's that cost related ultimately. But I think what happened was operators, especially in Europe, desperately tried to, to sell fixed by using different amounts of consumption to generate different amounts of revenue. And that failed miserably. So when mobile came around, when mobile broadband came around, they said, we're not going to do the same mistake again. We're not going to sell unlimited because there's no coming back from that. I think a lot of the legacy data caps are inherited from that. But it's interesting to me, and, and I, I realize I'm atypical in that way, but you know, I, I came in here on Sunday and I went and bought a temporary SIM card and the lowest tier was two gig for a week. And I said, yeah, that'll be good enough. And the guy looked at me as if I was crazy. Um, and, you know, when I see caps of 50 gig or, or you know, like you were talking about, or, or 100 gig, you know, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I don't consume two gig in a month. Now, I realize that I'm not 25 and I don't watch YouTube every, every moment of spare time that I have. But I think effectively caps have gone. Just the fact that you have a 100 gig cap doesn't mean there's a cap. It means effectively it's unlimited. It, it becomes a marketing proposition mm. more than anything else. Mm. And, and I agree. I, I think there's an artificiality. There's a segmentation of the market. It's, it supports price banding, um, you know, sort of 25 for five and 26 for more. Um, and the ability to reward customers and go, hey, well, we're going to give you more. But it becomes a very much a marketing thing, not a networking thing. And... Um, to all intents and purposes, I agree. They, they, they've largely gone. So why bother? Okay. Um, final question. Do either of you see uh, any significant uh, place uh, for satellite delivered broadband in the future? We've you know heard uh, you know num- number of uh, number of players, uh, SpaceX, sort of talking about these low Earth orbit satellites, putting up. Uh, I think in SpaceX's uh, case, something like three and a half thousand uh, uh, satellites up. Yeah, huge investment, bringing them much closer to the Earth, so we don't have the uh, the same uh, limitations that we've had in the past. But you know, still, you've got to have some uh, some radio spectrum for you know communications. Um, does it seem feasible that this is going to fit into the play, or we actually got the bases already uh, covered here? Yeah, look, I, I think a lot of them. I can see a use case for backhaul across satellite. I can see using satellite in place of subsea cables and terrestrial cables um, satellite to the consumer um, we've got latency issues we've talked about that before um, bandwidth issues were always a problem um, again I can see that being used for broader for aggregation and backhaul and as part of an overall strategy but not necessarily for the consumer level Right, so um, there could be could be a benefit if someone uh, pulls up the cables that link New Zealand to the rest of the world, or or for remote locations like uh, many what's of those cables, <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, um, but you've got locations like some of the you know, Pacific Islands, you know, Rarotonga and Cook yeah. Islands, and and uh, and whatnot. Where at the moment they don't have too much connectivity, so it could be pretty handy in those cases. Yep. Excellent. Thank you for your time. That was much appreciated. Pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Paul. Awesome. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology.
proactive and strategic IT.